0: And now, coming to you from the Gershon room, high above the Good Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stratton and Gary K. Wolf for the first time in a very, very, very long time, like months, on the Kud Street Podcast. Well, let's correct that. And not the first time in
1: months, because we, we have been playing some podcasts we recorded at Worldcon. This is the first time you have sat down in Perth and I have sat down in Chicago, and have re- we've recorded an old-fashioned one-on-one ramble fest. Uh, I guess that's so. true
0: I mean because really the last few months listeners have been a combination of scheduling as much as anything you know Saturday, weekend mornings are harder for me to come by these days and uh, the fact that we get distracted in conversation and don't record at all which happens as well uh,
1: but and, and of course the great lost podcast which we can now create a, a rumor about that we actually recorded but never released because they were too sensitive and hot and controversial
0: now absolutely no not, not really i mean we gossiped a bit but we're not going to tell you about that listeners that wouldn't be fair so how are you gary you're, you're, you're back from the 76th world science fiction Conv- convention in san jose california did you have a good week i had a wonderful time at uh at, at world Cup. san jose is a
1: nice location there are lots of places around uh, uh, to have nice meals, it was. It seemed to be a well-organized convention, as far as I could tell. There were uh, no major controversies. The Hugo Award ceremony was uh, fine. Um, we had some podcasts. I met a lot of friends. I did what I do at a WorldCon, which is not, unfortunately, going to very many panels. But I'm sure the panelists were all fine.
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, for me, I mean, it, it looked like a well-run convention, and hats off to everybody and all that. I do kind of feel like I somehow managed this time more than almost any other WorldCon I've been to, to not attend WorldCon. You know, well, I didn't. It's,
1: it's okay, it's very possible to go to a WorldCon, and a, a couple of our friends showed up. We should not name their names without registering because they realized you could basically go to the Fairmont bar and hang out with all your friends for a couple of days and never even see the inside of the
0: convention hall. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. Though sometimes I think that's a little bit unfair on the convention because it is after all the reason those people have come together and that's one of the reasons i pay the membership certainly um but for me you know i got into the convention center a couple of times i probably spent an hour maybe in the dealer's room across the entire five days mm-hmm. i got to exactly well i guess technically two program items because you and I did our Café Clatch.
1: Yes, we did, and thank everybody went, for
0: yeah. came out. It went surprisingly well, so a shout-out to everybody who was kind enough to come along to that. Uh, that went, yeah, well. And then, of course, the Hugos, which uh, I went to as well. But that was the sum total of it, Gary. Um, the rest of the time I seemed to spend all my time bopping around from one hotel to another around the greater convention area.
1: Well, now, you are one of these people that has a lot of business to conduct at World Cons, and and to some extent, I think that the business con, which used to be World Fantasy, a lot of that seems to have shifted back to World Con. I saw a lot of people having meetings, a lot of people making deals and that sort of thing. Um, But in, in my case, it wasn't making deals. It's simply the longer you go to conventions, it seems, the less you spend all your time in programming because unless it's a program you really, really want to see, every hour in programming is an hour you're not hanging out with your friends and
0: drinking. That That is very true. And there were program items I would have been interested to be at, and I, I probably mm-hmm. retrospectively owe people an apology, Gary. So if you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry. Uh, I had been double-booked for a program item about anthologies that I didn't make, which I would have loved to have been able to be on, and at some point I will attempt to make that up to programming. Also, um, I would have liked to have been more available to sign some books for some people who wanted books signed, but it was an intent. You know, this is one of the things. I mean, you're talking about schedules without getting too far down a not particularly interesting you know, path for everybody else. I didn't set out to put together a schedule for that convention. I deliberately tried to keep it wide open, and yet somehow, almost every hour was scheduled every day. And the four podcasts that we got in with Andy Duncan and Alec El- Naval Ali talking about Astounding, with uh, Joe Walton, which we've released, talking about the Hugos, with Rich Larson talking about his work, and with the other one, which will come to me in a minute. The other one, which will come to me in a minute. Uh, oh, which was Karen Joy and Fowler, Fowler and Jim Kelly talking about Clarion. Uh, all of which the- were great, but they were like,
1: but well, here's reading. the thing,
0: so, so, yeah.
1: you, you'd, you'd mentioned, you'd mentioned uh, Joe Walton, who was talking about her, Hugo's, it's a, it's a great podcast, and the one with Alec Navalny. Now, I had introduced Alec when he was talking about his book on Astounding, and uh, he wouldn't mind my saying this because he noticed the same thing. Both at that, at that panel discussion and at the panel discussion about Astounding itself, he noticed that there was a complete generational shift. Yeah. Uh, It was an older group in the room. There were younger people, but the younger people tended to be more scholarly types interested in the history of science fiction from a kind of academic point of view. And it was actually interesting because that one room I was in was the there was a lively, intelligent, uh, involved group. But it was probably the oldest group uh, of any panel I saw while I was there. And this is not a bad thing. But it does say that that there's not just a generational shift. I think there are multiple generations attending world cons now. I think there's a cyberpunk generation. I think there's a classic SF uh, tradition. Uh, There are people who have only read SF over the last 10 years. And they all seem to have enough to do. Uh, There seems to be a solid convention for several different demographic groups now.
0: On reflection, I guess what I'd say to you is I think there have been two different kinds of generational shift. Mm. as well as a kind of community shift. I think there's a generational shift in those who are attending these Worldcons. I think Worldcon is beginning to skew younger. I think that's partly because of the international audience that's been brought to it over the past mm. handful of years that will be amplified when it goes to Dublin next year and to New Zealand the year after that. Mm. Um, but I also think that there's been a generational shift in the writers that we're paying attention to, which is a thoroughly natural thing. It's happened over and over through, through the field. If you go back to when I came into the 80s, we began to pay attention to Stan Robinson, Bill Gibson, those people. In the 90s, there was Verna Vinci and uh, Neil Stevenson, and so on and so on. And I think we saw that. And occasionally that causes some chafing, but it's an entirely natural part of the evolution of the field and something to be applauded.
1: One of the things that it, it made me think about, and apparently made you think about too, was this thing you posted on Facebook just last week where you linked to an article about the canon of of, of great rock music, something, some survey had been done in 1974 or something, a Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. And but well, The point of it, that that canon doesn't hold anymore. And so the discussion was, would a canon like that hold up in science fiction? And to some extent... The obvious obvious answer is no. But it got me to thinking about um, what established the canon more or less by vote uh, 40 years ago was the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which was voted on by SFWA, uh, was a very narrow range of short stories over a 35-year period. Um, I don't think they ever voted on novels at all, but they may have, and I didn't know about it. And my sense is... That if SFWA were to try to conduct a vote on a Hall of Fame today, it would be sheer chaos.
0: Well, I think I would, and I mean, it would be. And don't, don't forget, my recollection of the Hall of Fame you talk about, which actually is the Robert Silverberg edited the SFWA Hall That's of Fame sense. anthology, my right. recollection of it is that it was done as a supplement to the Nebulas, right? It was supposed to cover that period of whatever it was. Up till 1966 or 7 when the nebulas commenced, right?
1: 64, actually. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was, it was intended um, to honor works. It was, it was like a retro Hugo in the sense that it was intended to honor works that might have won a nebula had there been a nebula.
0: Yeah, and it happened to cu- kind of cover the golden age of magazines mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things. Now, I think you would struggle to do it again now, partly because of the changes in the field and also because, in effect, the nebulas have done that themselves, since that that book came out i mean in theory you should be able to take i guess i guess you could run a poll of the voters today to choose between all of the nebula winners or nebula nominees or whatever what should go into hall of fame but whether you would get the same kind of result i don't know whether the same kind of Impact. I mean, right now what I kind of feel is there's an impatience with this whole motivation towards Halls of Fame to uh, grandmastership to canonicity, that right now it feels like the wrong time to be having that conversation. The conversation that's being had is about change and about diversity, about inclusion. When you start talking about canonicity at this point, you're either trying to freeze in, you know, these new people who are coming in, or to somehow restore the previous canon that was being paid attention to, as though you're trying to stamp that down on what's happening. It feels to me like the best thing to do, and this is why I linked to that article. It was actually the line about, you know, "This isn't the time for canon, right?" I think it'll come again. I think I keep talking about, you know, how I think the field's atomized now, uh, readers and bloggers and commentators, The conversations are being focused into smaller and smaller areas because they have the ability to do that now. You know, it's like you now have people where the the, the stuff of interest to them is sufficient to fill their reading time and they don't read outside that. And I do see more and more uh, closed groups of reading happening. And And that's why you get this issue where somebody will read in their area and go, this is the greatest thing in the world. Look at something over here and go, I have no idea why you're paying attention to that. Even though within that group, that work, whatever it might be, is considered to be the best thing for whatever reason. So, you know, uh, so I'm a little bit, because then it gets against you get to get into like, well, who would go into, into well, the, first of all, who from the current group of writers around would become canon? And the, in fairness to the, the group of writers without even preempting an answer to that question, is to surely turn around and say the true test of canon isn't a bunch of old white guys or anybody sitting around. It's time. And not even time in terms of what's still in print, though that's important, but time in terms of what's still being discussed, what's still reverberating through the literature as it evolves and changes. And so I think, you know, the works of the last, say from 2000 onwards, I mean, Joe Walton made a point of cutting off at 2000 partly because she became active as a writer but also partly because a lot of that work hasn't had a chance to really filter through the field yet we don't know yet whether you know whatever won the hugo in the year 2000 and i oh, will go have a look now that and turn around and say that in the year 2000 a deepness in the sky by in a vingy one right not a forgotten book but not one that's in common conversation right now will it remain in the Is vingy canon will he remain canon maybe was he canon? Those particular books, I mean, he won, that, he won two, two Hugos for those two books. You would have thought that two books in a series winning a Hugo would get you into uh, the canon, wouldn't it? But you've just, uh, you, you've just offered um, a definition of
1: canon, which is only one of many possible definitions. Is a book still being read? Is not necessarily the same thing as is a book still reverberating in the field. Uh, is a book, uh, a, a book which is important in its period – uh, nobody, I think, would argue that Neuromancer was an unimportant book. I don't know if Neuromancer is read nearly as widely now as it was 20 or 30 years ago. But it, 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 it certainly had a reverberating effect. And I think you could probably go all the way back to, I don't know, stories like, if you go back to the old canon, the old Science Fiction Hall of Fame, you could probably make an argument that stories like A Rose for Ecclesiastes, Zelazny, or uh, first contact by Leinster, have had an impact. Uh, I mean, uh, for heaven's sake, one of the stories which shows up again and again um, to be refuted is the Cold Equations, which I don't know. I think that was in the science fiction hall of fame, maybe not. But it's not even a very good story. But it's a story that <laughs> certainly had a lot of impact, but people sure. continue to respond to it.
0: See, that, that you're beginning to slide into the other conversation that dominated my my weekend when I was in the States, because I mean, when, when I arrived, I flew into California, a little bit tired and frazzled, um, and spent four days staying with our mutual dear friend, Ellen Clages. a quick shout out to her. I had a lovely time, got to relax, and then we had this lengthy argument, some detail, I mean, a conversation argument, a friendly argument. I have to say, not a ding dong battle. And it had to do with who should be SIFWA Grant Master right and i'm not going to go into her, the ones that she was naming that i disagreed with because i feel that has the potential to hurt people's feelings and i don't want to go there but i i we, we hit the name william gibson would he become an sfwa grandmaster and my knee-jerk reaction was that should be such a no-brainer that you can't even begin to doubt that that would ever happen and you know she was of the opinion to, to synopsize that it actually was kind of unlikely that he might make it. And there does seem to be a feeling that, you know, sort of... I mean, I can't, I guess my point is, if you talk about canon, if the idea that William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer, a book that changed the field, and who didn't go away, and who didn't stop writing strong books, um, that he's not an automatic shoe-in for this, then, you know, who is... Well, what does canon okay, it's, it's, do? You know, is it just stultifying I, people, really?
1: There, there is some – there's an argument to be made, which I've heard and I don't agree with, that he did go away, that he essentially became a writer of, of mainstream uh, hyper-modern thrillers, essentially, uh, even though <clears throat> the last two novels have all had significant science fiction elements in them. I think it also raises the question because you're saying that he's a shoe-in primarily because of Neuromancer. Uh, and if it hadn't been for Neuromancer, would he be a shoe-in, is another question, which raises another issue.
0: Hang on, Are but I mean, t- if, if Margaret Mitchell hadn't written Gone with the Wind, you wouldn't remember her either. Thank God. I wouldn't No, 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 but I mean, that's a, it's, like saying, wind you're, it's wind. like saying, if there hadn't been a tsunami, you wouldn't remember Aceh. If, if no had, Neuromancer had been- <laughs> is possibly,
1: it's one of his weakest novels. He's become a much better writer since then. Margaret Mitchell, as far as I know, never wrote anything but Gone with the Wind. If he
0: hadn't changed the face of science fiction, he wouldn't be important.
1: Well, but that one book is what did it. My question: What I'm raising now is 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 this difference? Is is there a difference between an author who's written a canonical book and a canonical author who may not have written that particular book? No. You don't think so? I
0: reckon if you haven't written, how can you be canonical if you haven't written a canonical work?
1: Well, there could be
0: a canon of writers
1: versus a canon of works.
0: Not convinced. Make your case. I think that sounds like I just want the person who I like to be in there because I like them. Surely it's it's the work. I'm not sure, but is it a single work?
1: A canon can that's
0: only a Well, come hmm. on. The, the writer who currently is a CIFO Grand Grandmaster on the smallest body of work, as far as I can determine, with almost no research, is Alfred Bester. Uh-huh. And no matter how you sp- split it, basically he's in there on two books. Two books and a handful of short stories. Yeah. And no one would would really argue that Alfred Bester should be unless i after was my not, grand not arguing
1: that Bester or no, anybody no. who made
0: such but, a... Uh, Gibson's there, well, would be there, on a novel, a batch of short stories, and yeah. some other stuff. I have no doubt that such was the impact of that book and that body of short stories... That he, that he would be a completely worthy uh, grandmaster and that his book is sufficiently canonical that in science fictional terms, at least, it will never go away.
1: When you say a body of short stories, you're opening the possibility to canonization of an author without referring to a specific changeable work. Okay, I will give you an example. I think a canonical author by even modern standards ought to be Cordwain or Smith. Is there a single Cordwainer Smith story? Well, really no, no.
0: You refer to the rediscovery of man and uh, the, uh, the, you know, the the, the over around the Australia
1: stories. No, because it's a cycle of stories. The rediscovery of yeah. man, the, the instrumentality of mankind. A lot of wonderful stories in there, but by the same token, there are a lot of wonderful Bester stories. But not a single story that had the effect of. The novels, "The Demolished Man" or "The
0: Stars My Destination." Probably like well, okay, there's probably three or four uh, Smith stories that probably belong in canon on their own merits. Mm-hmm. The Ballad of um, Lost to Mao, oh. uh the Thing of Rat and Dragon, a uh, couple of uh, Alpha Alpha Boulevard. Uh, there's a couple others. Scanners Live in Vain. I mean, genuinely canonical stories in their own right. Mm-hmm. See, I, I, I mean. Make a case to me, if you can, for an author who's canonical, who's never written a canonical work.
1: <laughs> well, I just did, and you just you just made some of his works canonical. Well,
0: that's because <laughs> I think they are canonical. Point. I mean, C- Cordwainer Smith is only canonical, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, because he wrote canonical work. Hmm. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's my opinion, and you're f- more than welcome to disagree with it. But, um... That's certainly how, how I would suggest that, that I would well,
1: sit Okay, we can go back to uh, a couple of generations before that, and I could throw out the name of Frederick Brown. Um, what Madian, his novels are fun. Uh, they're not that terribly serious. Most of his short stories are jokes, uh, but there's a huge body of work, some of which, like Arena, became classic science fiction works that even in that case made it onto Star Trek.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like time has washed Mr. Brown away. I think Mr. Brown is a footnote, not a, not, not mm, canonical. Hm?
1: perhaps, but people still, uh, you know, discover things like Martians go home. They discover some of the short stories.
0: Oh, there uh, are. Well, okay, no, l- let's not l- let's not split this hair the wrong way. There are writers mm. who have written interesting and worthwhile work that people will continue to revisit for years that aren't necessarily canonical.
1: Well, then what's the line? What what causes, what draws that line between being re-read by some, but not by lots of people, but being read consistently for years and years, and being canonical? If, if you're defining canon as someone who is reread on their own, apart from authority, apart from the argument to authority, I mean, one of the, one of the, Issues, uh, we're getting a thunderstorm here now. You might be able to hear that in the background. I should explain that. It's not... Okay, right. But um, in, in American literature, one of the books that's constantly cited as an unread canon, uh, canonical work is, is Moby Dick. It keeps coming up. The number of people, every time you mention Moby Dick, you're going to get people holding up their hands saying, I never finished it. And another group of people holding up their hands saying, I'm never going to finish it and maybe one or two people that admit to even having read it. And yet it has had such enormous impact over a period of a century and a half that even now Jeffrey Ford can write a sequel to it and and expect the audience to understand what he's talking about.
0: True, though, I mean, to address Ahab's Return, which is the Jeffrey Ford novel, which I've read now, uh, its strength is you don't need to know anything about Moby Dick at all. It's all self-contained. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I guess I need to think about this a little bit more because what makes me feel cautious about the idea of canon today is I think it's something we use to bludgeon people with. Not necessarily you and I, but which is used to bludgeon people into submission with and to uh, accept somehow that the work that they value is less important. Um, And I think a reverse is happening as well. There's now, if you like, a desire to kind of clear out canon and replace it with other work Rather than simply expand canon And when I think about it Whilst Frederick Brown's never I mean, you, you stick with him Is he canonical? He doesn't feel that way to me But then that's a personal thing A lot of these canon things are really personal And then I look and I think Well, hang on Arena surely must be a canonical story In fairness to Frederick Brown Or his career Because obviously Mr. Brown probably doesn't feel it very personally today um, You know And uh, you've got to wonder, will people still read – is Anthony Boucher canonical today?
1: I don't think so. There is one story barrier that I think people still respond to. But, again, you're confusing things there because he was so much more influential as an editor than he was as a writer.
0: Well, you say that, but, I mean, Silverberg puts together the SFWA Hall of Fame in 1970, right, which covers 34 to 63, or 64 maybe, right, Um, and there is Anthony Boucher. Surely, if you're in the cipher Hall of Fame, that's canonical. Um, is the problem here, that in fact, that, and this is what we're going around and probably frustrating our listeners with, um, is that canon is such a vague concept in truth that you can't nail it down, but it's something that seems having value getting a Sifra Grand Mastership is seen as having value, getting a, a world fantasy life achievement is seen as having value, even if it's only by the readers themselves who want to see the work that they value be recognized and lauded. I think um, canon...
1: This is the problem with the idea of canon as as cast in, cast in iron to keep the canon metaphor going. Uh, it, it, it ought to be something that's flexible. It ought to be something that's living and changes. One of the books I... Recently have read is uh, Lisa Osick's Library of America anthology, uh, The Future is Female, which is uh, an an effort to uh, represent American female science fiction writers from the pulps up to Le Guin. She picked a period that basically ranges from 1926 to 1960. And there are authors in there who have written canonical works. It seems to me that Zena Henderson's The People, as a collection of stories, maybe not a single story, uh, but as a collection of stories, is a canonical work. But that's about all she did.
0: Yeah. Like right, people's. I guess the other thing is, uh, and this is something that I'm sort of aware of, and it, it came out of some of the post Worldcon discussions around these issues, is that we don't really have a great idea of who's being read at all. We make assumptions. You know, you turn and say, well, is, um, is Harlan Nelson still being read? I don't have his sales figures. I don't know what's getting checked out of the library. I don't hear his individual work mentioned as much, though. He, you know, and he I mention him simply because he passed away recently, and hopefully people aren't going to be offended when I mention his name. You know, uh, how widely is Linda Nagata being read? How widely is Martha Wells being read? Now, you know, those are relevant questions because and it's not just sheer weight of popularity, but it's like. When you come to these kind of questions about about canon influence, like how widely some are being read? Are they still being read? Are they have they influenced others through what they've written? And how's that you know begun? To show up? And we can't know. I mean, one of the questions about this year's Hugo Awards has to be, well, what's going to end up canon? And I wouldn't even begin to guess what's going to end up canon. I, I confess, I would be, I'd be taken aback if Nora Jemison's trilogy doesn't end up becoming canonical. Um. It's been so popular and so well-reviewed and so successful and has won all these awards. It looks the right shape to become canonical. I'll be taken aback. But I couldn't get I, I, I don't know. You'd have to come back in 2038 and ask you the question again.
1: I suppose so. But again, again, that still seems to me to be a slippery use of the term canonical because whose canon are we talking about? To go back to the SFWA, uh, when they voted in 1970, the SFWA—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really apocalyptic
0: out there. I think we're being criticized. Um, God doesn't like us talking about canon, or at least, cloud. Or at least, cloud. Uh, SFWA in
1: 1970 looked a lot different from the way it does today, which is one of the reasons I don't think the membership was. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I am going to guess, but I'm going to say it was. A substantial majority male and a very substantial majority white, uh, and there's also a generation of writers, voters who grew up on the same fairly narrow body of work. They grew up reading the same magazines. That that world is long gone. So it's it's easy to make a canon if you've got if you've got a small pool to work to begin with. You pluck out the things that everybody read and liked, and uh, and, and the things that seem to create whole subgenres unto themselves, like lines universe. Um, I don't think you can do that now. I don't think if you were, if somebody were to come up with the idea of a canon of feminist science fiction, I don't think you could, you, you'd have you'd have a couple of books by Le Guin and Russ and, and possibly Susie Charnas and possibly a few other. But I don't think beyond two or three major works, uh, you'd get very far with establishing a definitive canon there. The other thing that confuses me, I, I
0: reckon them's fighting words. 10,000 10, feminists just turned around and started heading for your house in Chicago. I can it's give you the address. Oh, I reckon ah, you could put together a feminist really? SF canon. A bit, I reckon they have.
1: I, a, a, oh. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. There is not, a, I've never read an agreed upon feminist can, can, or canon of feminist science fiction, which is a have different thing. Have you read thing. an agreed
0: upon canon of science fiction, Gary?
1: No, that's my point. My whole point is that you can't agree on these things. You probably ought not to be able to agree on these things. But that if you were to agree on them, you'd be agreeing on a fairly narrow pool. In other words, how do you narrow down the pool of contemporary science fiction to the level as manageable as the SFWA had in 1970? That was a manageable pool of stories and they only had to worry about stories because basically during that golden age period novels were not a major concern so now what i'm saying is that this field is it's atomized it's maybe it's balkanized i don't know there's so many different science fictions out there that having one candle one 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 canon that was a strange slip of the tongue one canon that represents everything from military science fiction to postmodern science fiction to literary science fiction to science fantasy um, seems to me to be a futile effort and although you could probably come up with classics in each of those subcategories
0: well there we go I, I, I don't know where to take how to take this forward this is why I say I'm attracted to the idea of not, not talking about canon for a while I don't mean in this podcast I mean generally I think let some time pass let's stop trying to sort of set things in stone for a while
1: I think that's a that's a reasonable uh, request. I would honor that request. I don't feel the need to um, sort of decide some novels go on Mount Rushmore and some don't. Uh, but I am curious as you are as to which of the last ten years Hugo winners or Nebula winners or World Fantasy winners um, are, are still being read. I noticed that um, speaking of World Fantasy uh, one of the uh, Grant one, one of the Lifetime Achievement Award winners this year uh, is Betsy Walheim, who certainly deserves it in, in terms of publishing history, if nothing else. And the other is Charles DeLint, whose career goes back about 40 years or so and clearly has established a readership, a following, has produced a number of significant works. And um, does making him a Lifetime Achievement winner
0: canonize him as a writer? In a way, it does. Maybe. I, I was just thinking as well, I mean, how far back do you have to go to decide something's canon? If we go back 40 years, right? This this is the Hugo Ballot for 40 years ago this year. Okay. Time Storm by Gordon R. Dixon, which I would argue is not a widely remembered book. No. Lucifer's Hammer by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, which I would argue is not, whilst well, probably in print and still read, is probably not a widely regarded book. Right. The Forbidden Tower by Marion Zimmer Bradley, which would fall into a similar category. Right. Dying of the Light by George R. R. Martin, which has attention mostly, I would guess, because of George's other success. And right. Gateway by Fred Paul. Now, Gateway, mm. I would argue, has maintained, is probably still firmly canonical.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Skip forward 10 years, though, to just 30 years ago, and these were the nominees, and they are either... I would be interested in your opinion on the canonicity mm. of these books when we get to the end of the list. The list was When Gravity Fails by George L.R. Keffinger, The Earth of the New Sun by Jen Wolfe, Seventh Sun by Orson Scott Card, The Forge of God by Greg Bear, and the winner was The Uplift War by David Brin. Interesting. Yeah. Now, if th- that's 30 years. That's enough time to, you know... When Gravity Fails, mm. mostly out of print... Though a terrific book, mostly for "Earth of the New Sun," not the book that Gene Wolfe is famous for. The Earth of the New Sun is really an appendage. Yes, to, to a lot greater work. Yeah, and is probably one of those cases that, yeah, where where someone's being recognised for something else. Really, Seventh Son was the first yeah. in a new series by Scott Card, just before the world turned away from recognising him for everything, anything. Forge of God was right. Greg Bear, at what was arguably the peak of the attention he was getting paid, you know, like, between then and about nineteen ninety four five. And Brin, the world moved right. away from.
1: Two of the three, two of the three killer bees are on that, that list. Interestingly enough, hmm. um, and, and the, the one that won, The Uplift Wars, one that it seems to me is of a of, of a piece with the Forge of God. That, that seems to me now to be a very eighties kind of book. And I don't know whether it's widely read these days. I don't know uh, whether uh, The Forge of God is widely read these days. I suspect The the Earth of the New Sun is read by people who get that far through the series. But I don't think it's anywhere near the level of readership that The Shadow of the Torturer would have.
0: Sure. And if you skip forward another 10 years to the Baltimore-Maryland Worldcon of 98... The nominees and winners were The Rise of Endymion by Dan Simmons, Jack Faust by mm-hmm. Michael Swanwick, Frame Shift by Robert J. Sawyer, City on Fire by Walter John Williams, and Forever Peace by Joe Haldeman. I would argue mm-hmm. that the Hugos of 1998 aren't a great guide to canonicity. Probably not.
1: Uh, again, the the, the the Joe Haldeman book is, is I think, still read. As a conne- because of its connection to the Forever War, uh, even though it's not really the same story at all, the same characters. Uh, the others, uh, you're right. I, I, I don't think there are a lot of things there that a reader, let me put it this way, a reader who started reading science fiction in the year 2000 probably would not have encountered I'm going to guess any of the
0: books on that list. Probably not. Um, and they don't feel like they're actively part of the conversation very much right now Uh so very
1: very much white male lists up until that point
0: isn't it oh yeah oh yeah absolutely and even I mean like skip forward to just 10 years ago list is all all white male again I mean this is 2008 in Denver we were both there in the room as it were that was my I think my first year being nominated for the Hugo in fact yeah Uh, And the nominees that year were Robert Sawyer for Rollback, John Scalzi for The Last Colony, Charles Stross for Halting State, Ian MacDonald for Brazil, and Michael Chabon for the Yiddish Policemen's Union. And you're kind of going, oh, there you go. Um,
1: Chabon is still red, but not because it's science fiction, because it's Chabon. I should say the Yiddish Policemen's Union is is red because Chabon is still a very popular writer. Um,
0: well, they're all probably read enough at the moment because they're all popular writers. Ian MacDonald, I think, is still yeah. read um, And I would actually still recommend Brazil to you to, 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 to pull out. Uh, Scalzi is obviously mammothly popular, uh, you know. So, so yeah, what, what a, not a great guide to Canada yeah. City.
1: But, but with, you're right. With a, with a very popular writer like Scalzi, people will discover him and then go back and read earlier works. He's still very popular. Ian MacDonald is still very popular. Uh, so to some extent, those books are still read, whether or not we regard them as canonical. Sawyer is the same way. He's very popular. Uh, and once people discover his work, they go, they read back. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that the works have any uh, impact beyond the, the loyal readerships.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. So skipping away from canonicity, which we are not going to come to any conclusion about other than Read widely and don't worry about it too much right now, you know, frankly. Uh, What's up with you? Have you been reading, Gary? I mean, what's going to be the Hugo Award nominee of 2019 that you've come across lately?
1: What have I come across lately that would be a Hugo Award nominee in 2019? I don't think I've read it yet.
0: It's getting late, Gary. It's September. It's September.
1: It, it, well, I, I should probably... Okay, wait a minute. Let me see what I've reviewed this year. I'll just look that up really quickly. I mean, there was... Um, well, here, here's an interesting question. I mean, there, there, there is a Stan Robinson novel, but I don't think it's going to have the impact that um, New York uh, 2140 did. Uh, yeah. I think that uh, the, the, the trilogy, which may or may not... I've not uh, read the first novel by this Todd A. Thompson novel, Rollswater, which actually came out two years ago but now is being re-released by Orbit as part of a trilogy, which could be a very important work. Yeah. Uh, again, it's part of a new series of books being set in, uh, not, not a series, but a, it's, it's the third Nigerian, third or fourth Nigerian-based science fiction novel I've read in the last couple of years, c- a couple of which were Nnedi Okorafor's, of course. Yeah. Um, and apart from that, uh, let me see what's really struck me as good this year. Blackfish
0: City would be one on my list. Blackfish City would be a good uh, uh, possibility. So they'll, so they'll probably sideline it off to the YA list, right?
1: It could be. Um, I mean, one of the questions, I think Ahab's return probably more likely for world fantasy uh, is a very strong novel, which, as you point out, does not need to be... Uh, you don't. It, it helps if you know who Ahab and Ishmael were, but that's about all. Um, there's... Uh, Again, in fantasy, uh, I I, I think Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver is a very, very strong contender for awards next year. Yes, I would agree. And and, uh, as would probably uh, Theodore Goss's European Travel for the Monstrous Gentlewoman. Um, There are a couple of things. This happens every year. A couple of things that I read and like quite a bit that I know are going to show up on no ballots at all. Mm-hmm. And one of those uh, for this year, let me think. Uh, one of those for this year would be, because it's not even out in the United States, would be Simon Ings' The Smoke. Yep, good book. Very good it's book. Going, it's going to disappear without a trace, I'm afraid. And it's a really strong novel of a kind of, I don't know, there, there, there's, there's a kind of Christopher Priest slash Ian Banks slash uh, Simon Ings' Sensibility of that happens in a certain kind of literary British novel that for some reason or another seems to gain no traction in the United States at all. I don't know whether they make it to Australia, but I, I don't think I've no, seen this. I you know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting to see. I, I need to sort of pull out my there. list. I feel like we're, I'm, I'm not ready to answer that question myself about, you know, like, particularly science fiction novels, you know.
1: Um, well, I mean,. Depends on what you mean by science fiction. Who, John Kessel's *Pride and Prometheus* is that a science
0: fiction novel or is it a historical mashup? Um, I yes. think. It, I, I don't know whether the Hugo uh, audience will respond to it. Uh, possibly, one of the others, but uh, you know, the Nebula or the World Fantasy. But I'm not sure I see the Hugo um, readership responding in droves. No, I, th- I think we need to sort of go off and do some research and come back to this question, Carrie. In fact, I think we need to... Probably what we need to do... I don't know what we're going to do over the next week or two, but this is the challenge I'm going to lay out to you and to me mm-hmm. jointly. Go off, do it, collate, start collating our thoughts, because the, the year in review is not that far away.
1: You're right. And,
0: and talk about some candidates for our listeners to read. I'm sure they would love a, um, a, a mid-season reading list kind of thing where we could go, well... Go pay attention to this pay t- attention to this and because of what i tend to be reading right now i can say that the novella list would be easy to put together lots of great hmm. novellas to go
1: read there's some strong novellas
0: there right yeah go read phoresis by greg egan go read the Tea master with the D- detective by elliot de bodard go read god's monsters and the lucky peach by kelly robson uh bunch of stories you could get it go out and get very quickly time was by Anne mcdonald um but I've read fewer novels right now, and actually, I'm about to move into a period of time when I can read even fewer uh, yeah. because of yeah, various anthology commitments and whatever else. But now is the time to go hunt them out and start having that conversation, so yeah.
1: I will, I will, I will mention one novel which I liked, although it's not necessarily a terribly major novel, which might easily have made the Hugo ballad 20 or 30 years ago and probably won't this year, and that's John Varley's Iron Town Blues. Yeah. Um, you were really impressed with it, weren't you? I liked it. I mean, it, it's, it gets overcomplicated at the end. It's part of his eight world sequence. It's 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 again. It's it's a novel which technically belongs in a series that began, I guess, in the nineteen eighties. Um, and to that extent, it has something in common with um, the Bear and and, and Bryn novels we talked about before. But he does very interesting new things with it now one of the things that i learned from that is that a veteran writer uh can set a, a novel in a familiar universe of his even though it may not be as familiar as it once was and still do new things with it. i mean partly it's a it's a it's a uh a homage to philip marlowe to, uh, uh, to noir films to uh various other kinds of uh pop culture things but it also has a really interesting narrative voice that's a dog. It's narrated partly by a dog, a very interesting dog. And the questions of trying to translate doggies into idiomatic English comes up in various footnotes. It's a very clever book. As a mystery, I think it turns into kind of a mess at the end, but mysteries are allowed to turn into messes at the end. But again, I think I think that's uh, uh, a good example of a, a veteran writer doing what he does well and and experimenting with some new things at the same time. Uh, When I look at novels like that, I'm I'm not thinking... "Is this?" I I don't think about this whenever I'm reading a novel. Is this going to be a canonical novel? The last time I thought that might happen was when I read John Crowley's Ka, uh, simply because
0: it was so unusual. Boy, I was hanging out with people who hated that book, Gary.
1: Oh, really? See? I know know who some of them were, and I know why they hated it.
0: Ah, you know, look... I, I'm very um, bemused by that kind of thing. I kind of feel like I, – I think you're right. It's a book that may well become canonical. Who knows? Uh, certainly Crowley has written canonical work before, so it would be unsurprising if that happened.
1: No, I, but, but, you know, the other thing about a canonical work, it doesn't mean it's the best book. It, it means it's an important book, and it doesn't mean everybody's going to like it. As I, I, Like I say, my favorite example – in American literature is Moby Dick. The number of people who hate Moby Dick, the number of people who have uh, tried and failed to read Moby Dick, uh, I'm sure far outnumber those of us who finished it. And the number of people who have read Moby Dick three times or more, probably, look, they're probably all dead by now. <laughs>
0: they could be kind of I don't know, Gary. All I know is that we're probably going to be blathering about canon in, on episode 500 at this rate.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, there are things that just seem to me to be uh, that seemed to constantly be under discussion one way or the other. And one of the quotations which I like that I've probably quoted before on the podcast was what David Lindsay said after his career had utterly failed after A Voyage to Arcturus. <laughs> At a Voyage to Arcturus sold 625 copies and everything else after sold fewer copies than that. Um, and before he died, he said to his friend, D.H. that N- I'm never going to be popular, but Every every year, somebody is going to be reading uh, a book of mine. And it turned out that was true. It turns out A to Arcturus, ironically enough, uh, once it was reprinted by Golox, I think, in 1946, has never been out of print. And yet, not more than a few people a year read it, I'm sure. But those
0: people read it every year. It's true. Well, I think we should probably wind up. Uh, I've got to go and get ready to go out because you know it, it's Father's Day here, and I'm going to go and enjoy that. There is one thing I want to talk about. I don't often talk about actually the hands-on re- you know, work that I do as reviews editor of Locus, right? And the September issue of Locus just hit the stand, and we've been in the prog- process of rebalancing the review lineup, the kind of work we're covering the kind of people who are getting to write for us. And that's going to continue for a while. There's still some things. We had the retirement earlier this year of Farron Miller, which wasn't widely talked about, but left a huge hole in the magazine. We've had the sad death of Gardner Dozois, which in amongst its many, many, many other uh, impact, uh, robbed us of a reviewer as well. And I think this, is, this month's issue, which has the wonderful Kelly Robson on the cover, um is the first step at rebalancing reviews that i've been really happy with as as a reviews editor we've divided up our short fiction reviews rich horton now focuses exclusively on print short fiction karen burnham's come on board as a regular and is reviewing online short fiction exclusively and then we get a supplementary short uh, short fiction review column every second month from paula garan who's covering dark short fiction and that gives us a really nice balance of coverage. We've got your reviews. We've still got Russell Letson writing for us. Liz Burke has really established herself with with us as a regular, particularly uh, giving a slightly queer spin on mainstream science fiction and fantasy, which I really value. We still have John Langan on board writing um, yeah, reviews of dark, of dark fiction. Uh, Leela Garrett has come on board, so has Catherine Coldone. They've been doing interesting work for us. Paul Kincaid's writing for us at the moment. He's got a terrific, terrific piece on Dave Hutchinson's Europe books in the latest issue. Ian Mond has become a, a regular, writing, uh, particularly around the, on the slipstream of science fiction and fantasy, which I really like. We still have Karen, uh, uh Carolyn Cushman with us, with writing pop, his, yeah, popular fiction reviews as much as anything else. Uh, Colleen Mondor covering YA just a whole bunch of different people and I'm really happy with the kind of balance so I'd encourage you if you haven't picked up a new issue of Locus I would not normally say this I don't think I've ever said on the podcast go over to locusmag.com just buy this one it has the next forthcoming books installment so all those books that you want to buy next year that you didn't know you were going to be pining after the new Guy Gabriel Kay novel the next Charlie Jane Anders novel all kinds of other stuff they're all listed in there and mentioned in there so you need to get onto that and get on with that
1: people who want to be excited about the coming year the I guess the best-selling issue every year is the forthcoming books, or the forthcoming books issues, from what I
0: understand. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Most people want um,
0: to know But, but yeah, to, to me it's like we're beginning to get more diverse voices in the magazine as reviewers, which I think is valuable. We've got, you know, old hands like your good self and like Russell. Uh-huh. Uh, and like Caroline. Uh, or Caroline. And we have others. I mean, Rich has been here with us quite a long time now, that it feels like he just joined yesterday. Um, And, yeah, Karen and and Adam Roberts has reviewed for us recently as well. And other people Uh sort of lined up. So, yeah, good times. Anyway, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for lunch. Just
1: just because I'm I'm so old, I like to catch other people saying old things. You said Locus has just hit the stands. Locus, Locus has just hit the pads. It's just hit the phones. It's just hit your laptop screens. But there aren't very many stands that it's hit
0: okay you win But they still produce physical copies and yeah 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 look you can go get it you can go to look lo- you can go to locusmag.com you can hand over i'm going to go find out how, how much it is. i should i should ask them for a special Cood sub special cood street podcast subscriber discount so you could buy the current issue just to try it out but i think how much is it it's like 5 bucks or 6 bucks or something for the, for the issue $5.50 you can afford $5.50 this once. you find out about all new books for next year. You'll hear Kelly Robson. You'll hear Rebecca Roanhorse, who just won the, the Hugo on the weekend uh, for, for her story. Um, welcome to the Authentic Indian Experience, um, as well as all this other great stuff. So go check it out. Give it a go. i got to go. Great talking to you, Gary, and I'll talk to you all right.
1: next week. Happy, Father, happy Father's Day, and
0: we will check in again after you've
1: been fated for being a good dad,
0: or at least, yeah, you know,
1: a dad. Okay, Bye-bye. Dad. bye, bye, dad. Okay. Bye. Okay.